we're in this wave where I think people are questioning whether the the internet model works for news and information, right? Whether the uh, and how do, when does it work and how does it work? It has opened up an incredible opportunity for scale, but it has also opened up a lot of problems. Welcome to the Bright Ideas Podcast, where we discuss how brands build relationships with consumers and society through innovation, technology, and marketing. Bright Ideas is produced by the Center on Global Brand Leadership at Columbia Business School. I'm Matthew Quint, Director of the Center on Global Brand Leadership. And I'm JP Kuhlwein, Adjunct Faculty here at the school and Principal at Uber Brands Consulting. Bright Ideas is sponsored by Lexicon Branding, a specialized consulting firm that develops inspiring brand names and brand architectures for both the Fortune 500 and today's innovative startups. And Kogan Page, an independent, award-winning publisher that delivers best practices and innovative thinking from global experts across every key business subject. Today on the Bright Ideas Podcast, we are hosting David Rubin, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at the New York Times Company. We look forward to discussing digital transformation, the future of media, and building consumer relationships. Welcome to the podcast today, David. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Uh, it's great to be here. David, great to have you around. Um, we've chatted a couple of times. So I know that your background might be not what people expect for somebody who works at the New York Times. So that's why also I want to start with your background, um, particularly as it relates to, relates to two things marketing and the New York Times. How did you get there? Um, so yeah, uh, I started um, uh, in, after business school, I started in consumer products. Um, so I did two things. I was at Unilever, the global company. I brought Axe body spray to the United States as part of the team that did that. Um, and then I uh, led their hair, US hair care division during a, a turnaround. So I'm sure the first time you saw an Axe body spray ad, you thought that person is gonna go on later to be the, CEO, the first CMO in the New York Times history. I certainly, it was right on the top of my brain and, and that's exactly what, what, what happened. Um, I had one stop in between. I was at Unilever 15, 16 years, depending how you count the internship. But um, I, um, uh, I then went to Pinterest for a couple of years. Um, uh, and sort of similar to the New York Times, my responsibility was, you know, helping define the brand, make it mean more to more people. And, and, and there I was leading international growth. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and then I came to the New York Times. So it seems totally logic to me now that I hear this because Axe was newsworthy advertising at its time. Uh, at least it shook up a bit the, the, the packaged goods, let's say, advertising. Um, and, and Pinterest, obviously, digital pioneer, at least part of this early generation of creating digital platforms. Does this background help you a lot with what you're doing today at the New York Times, or is it a completely different animal as you, as you moved over? No, I mean, I often get asked, you know, people often will, will, will ask questions that sort of imply that they're, they see that as kind of a, that, the, that all three jobs is barely related to each other. And to me, there's a through line. I actually think I have the same role in all three companies. What I used to say at Unilever after, you know, we used to have those uh, workshops maybe a decade ago where, you know, you'd try to figure out your true north, 
you remember that book. For me, my, my personal mission statement was I like turning the mundane into the magical. While I wouldn't call the New York Times mundane, news is a sea of sameness. So it's kind of the same concept. So I might have to work on the word mundane a little, but it's, it's still the same concept of what I like to do is lead a group of people to figure out what the, what the emotional connection of a product or service is um, and unlock that through communications and through inserting that brand and, and, and surrounding that brand in, in culture uh, and doing that to drive a brand's business growth. Um, and so that's what deodorants was. You know, Axe was taking a category where everybody was saying the same thing. Everybody was talking about how many hours of protection. I think one brand had 36 hours at that point. You know, so if you don't shower for a day and a half, they're, they're the brand for you. And we came in and talked differently, right? We came in and talked about how it works for attraction and how it works for smell. Um, and that made that made it feel fresh. And even brands that were targeting a very different audience today talk differently because of it, because people realize that you could talk about something else and that, that, that a deodorant could be something that connected with people emotionally. Same thing here, um, you know, is really talking about, you know, for the New York Times, it's talking about, you can think of the news and the media as one thing. We don't. What we're doing is actually not something that's been around for 300 years. What we're doing is subscription-supported digital journalism. And that's a category that's still got a lot of growth and it's very small. You know, there are a couple hundred million people reading um, domestically, uh, you know, or around the world, um, uh, journalism digitally, and a very small fraction of them pay for it. Um, and so what our job is to grow that, it's to shrink that gap. So I see this as a category growth story not a mature category where we're trying to where we're trying to eke out a half share of margin point. So very similar to what deodorants were. Let's follow up now on the New York Times and the state of media today, right? You've just talked about being this growth opportunity. We're not a few margin points. We are this sort of new area and uh, of you know uh, long form quality, journalistic content that is trying to find a paid audience. And I think it's really interesting because your peers would be things like Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Each of them are uh, you know, challenging with you in these small percentage of subscribers relative to population. Um, and I think it's interesting because you're mixed in with a category of CNN and foxnews.com, right? In our digital world in which those platforms are not subscriber based, right? So talk about, you know, this distinction of what this historic print media that's now sort of digital and really not viewed in any different way in many cases, maybe a little more video, a little less video, right? One you can see on TV, one right. you don't. But from a getting in the morning and catching your news, they're kind of the same. So talk about your sense of the state of the media today. Yeah, I mean, look, you see this from our, from our marketing. All, all of the ads that we've made um, in the six years and a month or so that I've been here have been trying to show how what we do is special and different. That what goes into our work is different. And because of that, you get something different. Uh, effectively, you get the quality of journalism you pay for. One of our campaigns in 2019 went for uh, better part of a year, the truth is worth it. The idea being that it, it's worth it conceptually, but it's also just worth it. It's worth you paying for it. And that ad actually was the first time we used subscribe now at the end, because we're really trying, you know, that's not a, 
click through. Nobody does that from a commercial. It's a brand message. The fact that you need to pay for our journalism is a brand message for us. It's a concept we're working on over years. And so I totally agree with you. You know, if you don't believe that what we're doing is different than other sources and less the people who are in the same model than us, it's places that aren't charging, you would be crazy to pay for it. Just think about it as a as a as an analogy. You know, imagine a, a fast food burger restaurant, right? And imagine if you've got a hundred million people walking in the door, and imagine if only five percent of them paid for it, right? Also imagine if let's just say you bought 10 burgers in a month. Imagine if they only charged you on the third or fourth or fifth burger and that their competitor never charged but had a New York Times logo on the wrapper and that was how they made the money. That's media, right? That is literally the world we're in. So the fact that we have 9 million subscribers is nothing short of amazing to me. I mean, I would imagine that burger restaurant I just described would have zero revenue coming in, right? The only thing they'd have going is when their location was better. The thing that makes us stand out is that, you re that we really are doing something different than what you can get from other places and people can see it. And increasingly the trend is, is that people want it. Um, and so, you know, I think people are thinking about how they use their time and they're thinking about the quality of the information that they're thinking about. And that's much more on people's minds than it was half a decade and a decade ago. Right. And so I think we, we happen to at the moment be in a place where the continual and consistent investment in the in the newsroom and the quality of journalism, when if you go back a decade, it was not as easy as it is to do now for us. But when the Times decided, unlike a lot of competitors, not to cut its newsroom in the same way and to keep that investment, we now have more journalists than we've ever had in history. And it's allowing us to provide both a quality and a breadth of journalism that you can't get elsewhere. And because of that, people are subscribing. It, it's interesting. Um, you use this burger place metaphor. I want, I want to continue it. But in today's world, that burger place, I think, could still make a ton of money, even when it hands out its burgers for free. Because like you say, it could be the ad on the wrapper, it could be all the placed products that produce, uh, make it a showroom. It could be all the data captured of all the clients coming in because they need to submit their email and God knows what other data. In other words, it's a complex world today and you can make money in, in very different ways. When I look at the famous motto of the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, I, I want to ask you, what would the motto be today? Because it seems like it's not all the news, maybe. And uh, it's maybe not even news or not mainly news or not only news. And it's no longer about printing. You say it's about paying. Can you restate for us then what is the purpose, the true north, you called it earlier, for the New York Times? To be clear, true north was not my, was not my, uh, my trademark. But um, yeah, I mean, we don't have a tagline like that. But we do have a, a mission statement that we use. It's not something we use. It's not something we we advertise, but um, so that we seek the truth and we help people understand the world. And so, if we unpack that a little bit, the seek the truth part is the the core journalistic ethos, right? It's the without fear or favor, which is a a line that was used at the New York Times in 1896. You know, it's the we cover the the we cover the facts wherever they may lead. You know, it's that promise that we're going to present to you what the journalists find, even if what they find is, is inconvenient. 
we help people understand the world. So understand, you know, understanding is a key word for us in that sentence. Any news source is imparting information or knowledge. What we what we're aiming for is to is is understanding, which is the compilation of multiple points of information and knowledge. And so you probably need to look at things from more than one angle. You probably need to read more than one article. We need to offer you more than one format so you can see it from different ways, you know, a visual with words, with an audio podcast. It may take a little more work. You know, you may have to have multiple touch points. You may have to read a little longer. Um, and all of that's okay for us under our model and frankly fits with a subscription model, right? The world has really two meanings. It's the literal meaning that there's, there's really no news source that has, besides the wires, who has more journalists in more places than we do. We're geographically covering the world. But it's also the, the figurative world. It's, it's your world. You know, we're covering news and what's happening in, on a global scale, but we're also making recommendations on what to cook tonight. We've got you know, what dongle you should buy through Wirecutter. We've got the athletic covers what your, um, you know, your favorite sports team and what's happening there. So we're covering your world um, and your passion points. Talk a little bit about sort of acquisition, uh, you know, your role, David, or general knowledge of the fact that, you know, the New York Times is acquiring things like The Athletic, right? Like Wordle, right? Where is that coming into strategy when that's sort of a shift, right? In, in terms of a hundred year old company, how did that come about? Where are you trying to, to move that forward? And is there another acquisition in sight? Not that I expect you to do breaking news here on the podcast, but. <laughs> Look, it's not like acquisition is a core strategy for us. Um, and actually, if you go back uh, before 0809, this place was actually a conglomerate media company with a bunch of holdings that were not part of, that had no real relationship to each other. We even had a stake in the Boston Red Sox. Um, we, own, we own the Boston Globe, we own, you know, about.com. So come to today, you know, all that got sold off when the, uh, after the financial collapse and when the, you know, this place was having financial challenges. Our strategy is to be the essential subscription for news and information for English speaking global audiences. And so the, the, what the essential subscription requires is that we're covering your passion points, the things you care about. We are always looking for whether there are more of those than what we're currently covering. And we then make a decision on whether it's build or buy, you know? And so we will continue to do that. You know, the, the athletic was the understanding that there is a lot of passion for, for sports and there was a brand out there or a product out there, both that meets, you know, that really meets those needs and does it the way we would do it, you know, journal through a journalistic mindset, through a, you know, a, a rigorous process. They have, you know, some of the best and a lot of the best sports journalists in the world. Um, and so it, it was an easy fit. Um, Wordle was a little different. We already had a games product and a game subscription, um, a very successful one. And it was a way to add to that. It was obviously a different scale too, um, financially. Um, uh, and so, um, that's how we think about it. It's, it's very much more about sort of what is this core strategy around the essential subscription um, and helping people understand the world. Um, and if we can provide something, if there's somebody else who is meeting that need in a way that would make sense for us, then we'll certainly look at it. Um, otherwise, we'll build it ourselves. Interesting. 
you gave good perspective on how the purpose or mission has evolved and, and actually answered the question already, which was then if you're about the truth and helping people understand their world and you know where do recipes and so on fit in, and you say it's your world, you know, it's not just the news, etc. Let's turn to the myth because this is an iconic brand and brand myth plays a huge role. And so you are the, the newspaper um, uh, 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 that stands for exceptional journalism. You are the paper of record. Uh, people describe you for, for the United States, uh, tons of Pulitzer awards. How do you evolve this? Um, I, I've already seen now your Emmys and Oscar nominations as well. I, I, is that how it evolves? How do you, how do you evolve the myth that is uh, the New York Times when news becomes so much more than just news? The thing that matters for us is having a single proposition that when you, you know, that when you're a reader and you turn to us, you've got a good idea of what you're going to get. So cooking is a good example. We have a very successful, um, one of, if not the largest paid recipe digital subscription sites in the world. We talked about how much, how hard it is in news with so much free content. In recipes, it's crazy, right? I mean, you can get any recipe you want just from a Google search. So why would anyone pay for it? And the reason is, is they know that every time they open a New York Times app, they're going to get a good seamless experience and they're going to get a recipe that they're happy when they've made it. And all you have to do is Google or have Googled a recipe once, made it and had it not be what you thought it would be, not go well, not produce food you like, et cetera, to realize how much time you just wasted and money, right? And, and so that promise that we have looked, you know, that, that it's basically a very similar process of independent, an independent third party, you know, a journalist who's looked at a thing and said, this is the recipe that we want to offer. And that promise, you know, works in our model. I'm surprised you're not saying that the editorial part, the curation, the picking out certain recipes is the secret. You say it's about the digitally, I guess, I put that those words in your mouth, seamless experience, and it is the outcome that is really what it promises. No, it's, I am saying what you're saying. What I'm saying is it's the process that the journalist has gone through, which is the promise. And that is editorial judgment, that is editorial process, it's everything you see in our ads, you know, it's, it's the, the work that goes into it is what I think over, I don't actually know what time frame, but in the internet era got lost, you know, the concept that anyone with a, with, with a keyboard could be a journalist, you know, was a concept. And there's a lot of support that goes in behind that. Some of our iconic journalism that wins Pulitzer Prizes, people have worked on that, multiple people have worked on that stuff for a year plus you know, with folks whose names you don't read about supporting them, right, and making sure that they, you know, that they're safe, making sure that their things are fact-checked, you know, helping them travel, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot that goes into that. There is a process, and that that is what allows us to do a quality of journalism that others aren't able to do, and that is what allows that end outcome. Is, is there a common DNA, whether we look at the curation and the process of choosing recipes or developing and choosing the news? Is there a common flair editorial judgment that guides this or are those separate 
divisions and they are they do their own thing, quote unquote. Yes, although it all depends which ones you're talking about. So you know the generally speaking, it's all journalists and there's a similar process. There are parts of our report that are run separate from the newsroom. You know, the, the athletic is separate from from the newsroom. Joe Kahn and Dean Bacay were in a transition of our executive editor. You know, they don't lead the athletic, um, but they lead the bulk of the New York Times news. Um, so it kind of depends. Wirecutter is similar to the athletic, whereas a lot of the other journalism you get all runs through that single operation. So it, it's just sort of would depend what you're really asking about. But the thing that's- I, I was more thinking about the spirit. Is there a spirit, a common- That's DNA, what I'm saying. Whether you look yes. at Wirecutter or the recipes? Absolutely. But one of the reasons we bought Wirecutter was we said that if the New York Times was going to make a recommendation, and Jen, the New York Times did recommendations before we owned Wirecutter, we would build something like what they've built, right? It would, it would have- people who think of themselves as journalists, who are journalists, doing a ton of rigor, right? They, the thing that makes Wirecutter amazing and why I think people love it, why I love it as a, as, a, as a reader or a user is that they've gone to crazy lengths. You know, I always love, like I mentioned before that they have, you know, the number of dongles that, you know, that they look at to tell you which one, you know, this is a small purchase, right? Um, it's something we have all over our house. And there's somebody at Wirecutter who is obsessing about what would make most sense in what situation and doing it with independence, right? Doing it without, without an interest into, you know, we're not making that dongle and saying, how can I make sure that you want this one, right? We're looking at it with, I don't really care what the answer is. I just want to get to one. And that's the ethos. It's that we follow the facts wherever they may lead. And they structure it through a process so that they can be an objective, you know, independent look at what, at what the recommendation is. And all of our products sort of follow that. Even games, which is obviously a little different in a lot of ways, still very much an editorial and a judgment and a journalistic process to how those get put together and what gets offered. David, uh, I'd love to get in, right, there's been tremendous growth uh, for the New York Times and subscribers, uh, big thing for you. As as with many of your competitors, you know, growth rates are a little different uh, for each of them. But you know, the Post has grown. Post numbers are a little harder to get because of the Amazon, you know, Prime related elements, Wall Street Journal, etc. A lot of that really kicked off after November 2016, um, leading into and particularly, you know, around that election. That's when you started right in your first role, you know, head of brand. Talk about, you know, the Trump effect on media and where you see that lingering and that sense of what, you know, he, you know, the, the growth of the term fake news as he used it and others now have in all sorts of ways, you know, how did that impact what you see now with this tremendous growth? In 1995, I think the print subscribers of the New York Times were about 1.5 million. And now you just said you're up about eight for I think the, the digital news subscription, right? So, yeah. So, so, I mean, so like massive growth from a historic paper of record, you know, talk about, you know, that as an inflection point. So it's definitely been a, a just six years of rapid growth. What I will say is that while it started around the end of 2016 um, and early 2017, 
we've had other waves as well. The pandemic had brought in more growth than that than than that period did. Um, so the thing that I think is, and the thing that sort of runs across all of that is what drives these waves of subscription is uncertainty. You know, when people aren't sure where the world is going and they really want to understand, they turn to the trusted news sources. And that's what we're seeing in the moment is people are not sure where the world is going. And so they're turning not just to us, but to the, the places that are really trusted and that have a track record because they have a promise of that. I think that you couple that with a longer term trend, which is that we're in this wave where I think people are questioning whether the, the internet model works for news and information and how to, when does it work and how does it work? It has opened up an incredible opportunity for scale, but it has also opened up a lot of problems. And I think you see that people are turning now, you know, it's, it, for us, it's not just reading the New York Times. The thing that makes the difference is reading it in our own platforms. That's where you're able to sort of follow our editorial judgment. We talked about understanding might take more than one touch point. Um, you follow that editorial judgment all the way through. I'm not saying you shouldn't read other things. It's just that when you're reading the New York Times in the way that you only can through a subscription and through our products, you get, it's that benefit of all of those pieces together that really gives you the value. And I think people are starting to see that. And they're seeing that not just with us, but with a small handful of of, of other products. I wonder, well. you know, one of the other interesting things I find the growth, right? New York Times went to, I fully paid in, in 2011. Uh, one of the early, you know, one of the early players, I think Wall Street Journal had been also quite early in the full paid. And one of the stories that hasn't come out, I think, as much over the last three years, three, four years, um, in, in the way it has in the long form entertainment content. We talk about the streaming wars, right? And Netflix and soon, who are you paying for? And what are you paying for? And now it's bifurcated. And how do you cut your cable? And do you pay more after you've cut your cable? A lot of that discussion. As an example, I've noticed this. And as an example, just looking in the prep work for to interview with you, I came across six paywalls um, in looking for articles in various publications where you've done an interview at, during your time with Pinterest or during your time with Unilever, you were quoted in some, and oh, there's another paywall. How have you seen that in terms of you, but all your competitors at the, you know, at the lower levels too, lower than from Business Insider to, you know, trade publications, Adweek or Marketing Week or on and on in all sorts of different industries, paywalls everywhere now. And do and you think that has helped change a consumer mindset to help drive your growth? It, because it isn't free everywhere anymore. I think that people are realizing you get the quality of journalism you pay for. You get the quality of anything you pay for, right? And so... The, the, the tangential point to that is that, so if you aren't paying for journalism, ask yourself what quality you're getting. Or, and, or, or what they're paid, <laughs> yeah. or but by whom they're yeah. paid. Or, right, or who is paying them. That's right, that's your other point. And you see that both of those models in the industry, the models that aren't working, and the models that, that, that are you getting independence, right? And maybe you don't need it in everything, you know, that, that's your choice. We think you do. And we think the quality you get is, is different. And therefore, that's why we think people are coming to us. So I think that's, by and large, the more journalism that is, you know, look, look, it's true in entertainment. You can get entertainment for free, but it is, it, it's much less than it was. You know, I think when we were all, um, you know, growing up, the, the, the inner, you know, most content was watched on a free television, right? Um, today, 
most content is consumed through, whether it's cable or something else, it's consumed through, through something with a subscription. Um, and because of that, you've got a, a, an amount of content available at quality that you never had before. I have to believe the same thing happens if, if news and information goes the same direction. You know, in the end, you get a higher quality when it, JP, your point about lots of business models is true, although it's also true that today most of those business models make less money. Yes, it is possible to support a business through an ad model, but if you want to support something with a really large, you know, with a really large scale, it is super hard to do. The only places that are really doing that in, in media are at the billion, billion plus kind of platform, right? And anybody, people at 200 million are being told they don't have enough scale. Because of the behemoths of advertising, Google and Facebook, et cetera. And because advertising is, is fractions of pennies, right? Is that, so that burger company might work, but they better have a very, very large scale, um, which some do, but um, because what you're up against is, you know, you're, you're not going to get ad, ad rates that are going to provide it on a 10 or 20 million customer kind of kind right. of way. It can supplement a business model. I think those other revenues you talked about are, you know, data and advertising are really important and they're super helpful as a supplement. They're very hard as the core, as the core thing you do, just because the economics aren't there. Right. Right. When we turn to the reader, viewer, listener, because by now it's all of these, right? We use the word reader because we haven't been able to find something that means all of them. The but, intaker, the intaker, the, 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 the information absorber. Um, <laughs> um, keep working on that. <laughs> what, you are, what you're talking about sounds a lot like what I keep uh, describing as modern prestige brands, you know, emphasis on craftsmanship, i.e., you know, what are we producing, uh, clear uh, 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 editorial perspective uh, uh, or a brand DNA uh, expression of that. But with that also comes exclusivity in the positive and negative sense of, you know, obviously there are people who really want that, who appreciate that value and who are willing to subscribe uh, and commit uh, in the way that you now seek for them to do. On the other hand, isn't how do how are you feeling and thinking about potentially losing the people who could benefit from occasional exposure that are locked out and isn't there an aspiration for many news uh, companies to touch everyone not just those who subscribe literally to what you're doing are you losing half the nation i almost literally half the nation a bunch of different points in that. Let me see if I can unpack them. I think that, first of all, it is our aspiration that everybody should have a subscription to a, a news and information source. It's a independent free press is critical to a democracy, and it's a concept that we're losing our hold over. And I think even if you go back several hundred years, every leader in, in a political sense has always hated the news, you know, and their coverage in the news, but they still understand why you need to have it. And so you can, you, two things can be true at the same time. I wish I was covered differently and I'm glad you don't go away. And so we believe in that. We also believe that everyone should have a subscription and a lot of them should have it to us. If you go back at the height of print, 
50% of Americans' households had a print subscription. There is no reason that most of the country can't have a subscription, and a lot of them have it to the New York Times. We have to get there. And so I don't think there's anything in the model that fundamentally presumes that doesn't happen. You just have to value a lot of, I'll say consumers in this case, have to value this subscription over other things with with their hard-earned money. Um, And it's our job to show you that this is worth getting over a music subscription, over an entertainment subscription, or in addition to it, but maybe over the second or third entertainment subscription or whatever else. That's our job is to show you that this is critical to have. And the way we do that is by showing you that the what you get here is, is, is more valuable than doing it through a free source. So that's my answer to your, to your question. It, it definitely is a long arc. Right. When, when we look at iconic brand, we, we find what we describe as the Uber target, um, which are those very engaged followers but they're not just followers they're also often the muse of the brand you know because they do things does the new york times have such a followership or do you actually actively try not to have that sort of both we absolutely want to have a um we want to be for for anyone who's interested in understanding the world um the only caveat is at the moment we're mostly accessible in english so that's a that's a constraint, particularly globally. Um, uh, but, but if you set that aside for a second, we think about our, our audience, it's something that I think is pretty universal, which is people who are curious. You've gotta be peop- somebody who is interested in, in learning. You've gotta be somebody who's looking to seek out you know, more information, looking to understand other people and other cultures. But I don't think that that's a particularly limiting, our evidence is that there's a, you know, that our TAM is in the hundreds of millions of people. I, I think that's a pretty broad audience. And I think that it's available to, you know, a lot of people and it, and it appeals to a lot of people. Look at the people who read us. You know, we have a couple hundred million people reading us on a monthly basis. That's not a small niche, highly segmented or highly targeted audience. The issue is just getting them to pay for it. And so I think that, you know, some of the narrative that you hear suggests a very, very small slice, and it's not really the reality of who comes to us. The other part of your question, which is a little unique to us and runs a little counter to my burger example, is we do make the product pretty available. Other competitors and other points in time have had much harder paywalls than us. You know, you can read a fair amount of the New York Times. Obviously, we wouldn't have a couple hundred million readers. We had 9 million subscribers if it wasn't possible to read the stuff. You know, the Daily doesn't have a paywall at all. Wordle is completely free to play. So there's lots of our content. The Morning, um, which is the largest, you know, news daily morning newsletter, you get that with a registration. There's lots of our content is available to people without paying us money. A lot of our content is not available without paying us money. But so we're doing both, to be honest. And we're doing the the open part mostly because it's good business. Also because it does meet the mission needs. One thing we like to get to with each person we interview now is this idea of a bright idea, right? And this is sort of this stepping out of necessarily the daily role you have with the organization you're working for, but this passion you have for what would help change or what would 
be great as a change to something you have good domain knowledge on. Could be directly related to, you know, the media industry, journalism, but, you know, by, uh, we are happy for people to express grander ideas about business and society that they think of as important to sort of get to a better place uh, overall for people on the planet. So what's your thought? What's one of those sort of bright ideas in the back of your head that you think would really help improve you know, your industry or the world at large? I, for me, it's more conceptual and we've already talked about it. You know, it's the, the idea that independent original journalism is critical to both society and to an individual as they, as they go about it. The, the thing that's so great about us is that like the, the mission, the business, the brand, and even the, the business model are all one thing. And so many companies are trying to do that and can't do it. They've got a great mission, but they can't figure out the business model. And people can see the difference. For us, it really is one thing. And the thing that like at a societal level, the, the thing I wish was more true is that people realized just how important an independent press is to any, any society that, that we value. And I think a lot of people do, and I think that more people are, but, you know, you just need to look at the trust, you know, the trust surveys that, that are out there from third parties to see that, you know, there are lots of questions about that. Yeah, I think actually the trust in news question is this fascinating one where, because news has been bifurcated in this country, I think in particular, but globally as well, in terms of sort of viewpoints and angles, you know, whether it's, there's underlying just core, you know, investigative fact-based journalism on both sides a little bit, but the editorializing or the, or the view of it being editorialized or the selection of what you choose, that there's a lack of trust because on one side, it's like, I don't trust the media because there exists Fox News. I trust this half of the media, but not this. And for the other people, it's, I don't trust the news because there's the New York Times and I trust Fox News. So it's, it's a very tricky category to get that consumer trust question just right on, I think, right? Because it's like, at large, we see it being manipulated on whichever angle we take, whichever rose-colored glasses we put on. The real problem for me is definitional, which is like, when you talk about the news and the media, it's like saying restaurants, right? Like, there's lots of things going on that, have, that are very not related. You know, and they all have a purpose in some way, shape or form, potentially like what we're doing is a very, a very specific thing and is not related to a lots of other things that people will call the news. We're constantly asking people, how do you feel about this entire thing, which really isn't fair. And so what we're trying to do is pull it apart and to say, in the end, what we're doing is a, is the specific thing and we want to win and earn people's trust that they can rely on that because it's an independent look and you know we'll follow the facts wherever they lead. We really try very hard to resist the political definition for ourselves because we don't think it's fair. When it's not how we approach our stuff. Looking at this as a brand center, it's interesting. You're in kind of CMO nirvana, I would say, because what you said earlier about a brand that fully can deliver and indulge in its mission or, or, or call it the higher calling and uh, the business model works, meaning and make money. I mean, that's where the nirvana is because like you say, the, the friction usually is I have a higher calling 
but it makes me poor, or I do, I make a ton of money, but I feel awful because I know I'm betraying my higher calling. So you're saying you're Zen, you're in, in brand nirvana on this level? I mean, look, everything's got its challenges, but sure, I, I think so. I think like, look, our promise is that we're going to, we're going to help you understand. We're going to show you the, the, the facts, even when they're inconvenient. We hear from our readers, um, particularly ones you know, who are really engaged, that like the special moment at the times is when they show you something that was counter to your views or was something you didn't know you cared about. So if we spent our time, and we don't, to be clear, saying, what do you want? You, we wouldn't fulfill our mission because if you don't know that you care about it or it's counter to your current views, you wouldn't bring it up. Our whole promise is giving you things you don't know you want. And so that's the editorial judgment you were talking about. And so because of that, we're literally able to give people things that they didn't ask for or didn't even know that they wanted and have that be good for our, our long-term brand and our business, because that's the proposition. You're so quotable, David. Another one, give you things that you didn't know you want. A lot of marketers should do more of that. Well, that's the, right, that's the Steve Jobs. <laughs> Yeah, the iPhone never would have been built. David if I said just it asked first. Consumers. David, yeah, said it first. exactly. <laughs> Look, this is the hard part of our jobs, right? This is the is that what I just said can make you go out of business too, right? Like, you know, if we're talking about the entire world, if your basic thing you're doing is offering things people don't want, that's how you don't. That's how you don't survive. That's where that um, balance is 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 extremely valuable of being able to monetize the mission without feeling bad about it. And with the definition of brand, right, it's about a track record and it's about knowing where to make those choices and where not to make those choices, right? right? What, what, is the, what is your core proposition and deliver that. And in our case, that core proposition is independent journalism. So we offer that. The fact that we offer that independent of what a reader might think initially is actually the thing we're building over time. If you showed up tomorrow and offered something that somebody didn't know they wanted, you know, in a different industry, a different business, it wouldn't do well, right? So the, the track record and the proposition really matter. But that's the point that you're making because we've aligned those things together. Right. Excellent. So uh, as we're talking brand here, David, and uh, we like to ask each guest also to conclude to talk about one of your favorite brands and why. So, you know, something you as a consumer, a brand as a consumer or as a business professional, you know, it could be a B2B related brand. Do you respect um, and why? Also, I won't cop out and say the New York Times. I'll pick just one that I'm admiring how they're, as a professional, as they're doing their work. The Taco Bell and what they're doing right now with the, you know, with the drag brunch and the, I just think it's amazing as a marketer, how they've made the selling out of their, of some of their items, um, uh, they had some story the other day that somebody walked in and bought 180, I think it was, uh, Mexican pizzas in one sitting. I hope that person has friends, but, <laughs> you know, and they're having trouble keeping them in supply. I think that what they're doing in terms of building a, a, an interest in the product, being true to who they are, but also expanding that, I think it's a clever program and, and they're doing it without tons of, you know, traditional ad money too, I think, which is also really impressive. And an ethos of nostalgia. I am who I am, but I'm also evolving. I mean, that's all what we all want as people too. And I think in the end, you know, it's that relatability that you build by by sort of picking some of those personified qualities. 
and I think that the, there's an authenticity to it. There's an, a humility to it. Um, there's a trying to get better to it, but not forgetting where they come from. I think it's 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 all very well done. I would have sworn you would say Axe because I always thought that you're actually the guy in the elevator in that original ad. <laughs> <laughs> I think that ad was 1983. So even though I'm a lot older than I than I want to be, I'm safe. Wasn't me. David, thank you so much uh, for being with us here today on the Bright Ideas podcast. It was a pleasure to host you. It was my pleasure. Thank you both for having me. Nice to, to get to talk to you, Matt, and nice to, to see you again, JP. Please subscribe to Bright Ideas on your favorite podcast service. We'd like to thank, once again, our sponsors, Lexicon Branding and Kogan Page. For more information about the Bright Ideas podcast and Columbia Business School Brand Center, please visit brightideas.co.